Chapter 35 of The Life of Philip Melanchthon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry Wilson. The Life of Philip Melanchthon by Carl Friedrich Litterhaus. Translated by Gottlieb Frederick Kotel. His Domestic Life. If we wish to become better acquainted with a great man like Melanchthon, we must follow him from his public into his domestic life. Here his inner life is revealed to the eyes of an observer. We have already heard that principally by Luther's encouragement, he married the daughter of Mayor Krop of Wittenberg on the 26th of November, 1520. His wife Catherine was of the same age as himself. Shortly after his marriage, he was able to write of her to a friend, that she deserved a better husband than himself. It was therefore to be expected that their union would be a happy one, and so it was. They regarded each other with the greatest affection, and thought and felt in harmony. If one, for instance, bestowed anything upon the poor, it filled the other with joy. Frequent attacks of illness disturbed, or we should say rather promoted, their happiness. He was greatly troubled with the stone, and she suffered from the same disease and also an affection of the liver. It is therefore not to be wondered at that the oft-repeated illness of his wife filled Melanchthon with the deepest compassion, and that he often freely expressed his sorrows in his letters. She bore the cross to her own gain, and greatly longed to leave this veil of tears. She endured her sufferings patiently, and found her principal comfort in the book of Psalms, which has so often proved itself a lasting blessing to many souls. Frequently did she utter the prayer in Psalm 71.18. Now also when I am old and gray-headed, O God, forsake me not. Camarius, who was intimately acquainted with her, bears the following testimony. She was a very pious woman who loved her husband devotedly, an industrious and active mother of her family, liberal and benevolent towards all, and so careful for the interests of the poor that she did not only lose sight of her ability and strength in the distribution of her charities, but even interceded for them among her friends, with the greatest earnestness, and even impetuosity. She led a spotless life, and was so anxious to cultivate a pious and honorable character, that she did not concern herself about expensive entertainments or costly dress. Their union was blessed by the birth of four children, two sons and two daughters, Anna, Philip, George, and Magdalen. His daughter Anna was born in 1524. Melanchthon was a great friend of children, and regarded his own with the deepest affection. He was particularly devoted to his Anna. At a certain time this little child entered the room, and found its father weeping. It approached him, and with its little apron wiped away his tears. He says of this, This proof of her love made a deep impression upon my heart. He did not dream at that time that the fate of this daughter should cause him to shed many bitter tears in future. At another time, one of his daughters absented herself from home for a long time. When Melanchthon saw her, he asked her in a jesting way what she would say to her mother, who would no doubt give her a severe scolding. The child replied in its simplicity, Nothing. He was highly pleased with this reply, and he often afterwards made use of it, when attacked by his enemies. Adami relates, Upon a certain time a Frenchman paid him a visit. He found Philippus in the nursery, where he was rocking the cradle with one hand, 
while he held a book in the other. When he observed the surprise of his guest, Philip praised the duties of family life and the gratitude of children towards God in such a manner that the stranger departed greatly instructed. He felt happy at home, in the nursery, and in the family circle, which he called the Little Church. His son George, who was born November twenty-fifth, 1527, died when he was two years old. He was very much attached to this child, which already displayed extraordinary intellectual gifts. Great indeed, therefore, was his sorrow when the Lord took it away. He speaks of it in several of his letters. Luther even calls upon Jonas to pray for him that the Lord would comfort him. Luther wrote to Jonas on the 17th of August, On last Sunday the Lord took away our Philip's son, George. You can easily imagine how very difficult it is for us to console this tender-hearted and most sensitive man. The death of his son has filled him with extraordinary sorrow, for he has not experienced this before. You know how very important the preservation of his life and health is to us all. We all suffer and sorrow with him. At the close of the month, Luther again wrote to Jonas. Philippus is still grieving. We all sympathize with him, as a man of his worth richly deserves it. Oh, that all those proud Timons were humbled by crosses like this, who are so proud of their own wisdom that they do not know how much this man, sinful and feeble though he be, is exalted above many, yea, thousands like Jerome, Hilary, and Macarius, who are altogether unworthy to unloose the shoes latchets of my Philippus. The eldest son bore his father's name, and was born on the 13th of January, 1525. The boy suffered very much in his earlier years, so that his father entertained very little hope of raising him. But notwithstanding all this, he lived to the great age of eighty years. He did not possess the talents which so greatly distinguished his father. When very old, he wrote in an album, I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ. Philippus Melanchthon, August ninth, 1603. George Sabinus was born at Brandenburg, April twenty-third, 1508. In his 15th year, he had come to Wittenberg to pursue his studies. Melanchthon became acquainted with him and loved him on account of his extraordinary talents. He was particularly distinguished for his poetical talents. When Anna, Melanchthon's favorite, was 16 years old, she was married to this Sabinus, with the consent of her parents. This occurred in the year 1536. In the year 1538, the elector Joachim of Brandenburg called Sabinus to Frankfurt on the Oder, as professor of polite literature. Being an exceedingly vain and ambitious man, he looked upon this situation as too humble, and longed for one more honorable. Such an one seemed to be open to him when the Duke of Prussia established a university at Königsberg. Melanchthon wrote to Camarius in the spring of 1544. Sabinus intends to leave the academy at Frankfurt because he finds it very difficult to satisfy the demands of so many learned judges. He is looking for hiding places where he will be able to rule and from whence he may be introduced to courtly life. This, you must know, is the substance of his plans. Perhaps we may add to this that he is desirous of removing my daughter farther away from my observation, but I endeavor to be calm. We may easily conceive that the modest, gentle Anna could not live happily in such a union. She complained to her parents, for Sabinus was also a spendthrift in addition to all this. By the recommendation of Camarius, 
Sabinus was appointed the first rector of the University of Konigsberg on the 17th of August, 1544. Before removing to this place, Anna and her children remained for some time in the house of her parents at Wittenberg. Melanchthon's love towards his daughter and her children was now renewed and increased, especially as he saw the prospects that awaited them. He wrote to Camarius, This journey of my daughter fills me with constant sorrow, but I pray that the Lord may regard our tears. Could you but see how amiably my daughter has deported herself while at home? She is quiet, modest, gentle, very conciliatory, and of a prudent mind. But she was not destined to remain in this school of suffering for a very long time. For, as we have already heard, the Lord removed her in March 1547. This was the severest affliction that Melanchthon ever endured. From Zerbst he wrote to his friend Paul Eber in Wittenberg, I send you a narrative of my daughter's death, which, whenever I read it, or even but think of it, so increases my parental sorrow that I fear it will injure my health. I cannot banish the sight of my weeping daughter from my eyes, who, when she was asked what she would like to say to her parents, replied, I think of several things which fill me with anguish. Camarius says that she appeared as a corpse to her father in a dream, in the very night in which she died. Melanchthon wrote to him that his daughter had gently passed out of this life giving striking evidences of her love towards God, her husband, and children. It soon appeared that the love which Melanchthon had borne towards his departed daughter was now transferred to her children. He therefore wrote to Sabinus, I wish our friendship to be a lasting one, and I am determined to cherish it faithfully. I shall look upon your children as my own, and they are indeed my own. I do not love them less than I love their mother. Many know how fondly I loved my daughter, and this love has not been extinguished by her death, but continues to be nourished by sorrow and ardent desire. And as I know how much she loved her children, I believe that I must transfer her affections to myself. Great indeed was his joy when Sabinus, during his journey to Wittenberg in the autumn of 1547, left behind him three daughters and a son. These grandchildren were the greatest recreation of the grandparents. He would sometimes even speak of these children before his hearers. His youngest daughter, Magdalene, born July 18, 1533, was married to Dr. Caspar Pusser when she was but 19 years of age. After Melanchthon's death, Pusser became the first professor of the University of Wittenberg and physician in ordinary to the Elector of Saxony. Their union was richly blessed with children. He endured many persecutions afterwards because he and some of his colleagues secretly approved of the doctrines of Calvin, on which account they were called crypto-Calvinists. He was compelled to languish in a prison for twelve years. During this time his wife died. One morning he dreamed that he was tolling the bell for a funeral. The rope broke in his hand, and awakening he cried out, The rope is broken, and we are free. In the very same moment the door of his cell was opened, and he was liberated. Grief took such possession of his heart that he was frequently observed weeping during public worship in Zerbst, whither he had retired. His servant John has likewise been very properly counted a member of Melanchthon's family. This was John Swapian, who for thirty-four years served him with great fidelity and honesty, managed all his household affairs, and trained and instructed his children. Melanchthon entertained the highest respect for him, 
and frequently wrote to him when absent on a journey. This man must have had a truly Christian understanding and heart. When Veit Dietrich, upon a certain occasion, sent some sermons upon the struggles of the soul of the Son of God to Melanchthon, he replied that he had not read them yet, but intended to read them attentively, and then continues, My servant, who reads such books with great delight, praises them very much. When he died, Melanchthon publicly announced his death, and spoke of him in the most touching manner. We will repeat it. My servant John, born in the Necker, lived with me four and thirty years. He served God with true piety, and towards men he was just, faithful, and obliging. He was chaste and a friend of chastity. He devoted his mornings to the reading of the scriptures and prayer, then to the training and instruction of my little sons and daughters, and then to household affairs. He accompanied us on all our times of exile, in time of war and pestilence, and witnessed my life, labors, and afflictions, and time never produced any change in him towards us. This was an honorable testimony for Melanchthon, even as Eliezer was an honor to Abraham. We must also notice Melanchthon's personal appearance, his manner of life, and devotional exercises. There was nothing striking in his appearance. He was small and thin, yet of good proportions. His chest was broad, and his neck somewhat long. His face was very expressive. His forehead was high, and his blue eyes were full of beauty, intelligence, and gentleness. He was very animated in conversation. The amount of work performed by this man is really amazing when we remember that he enjoyed but few healthy years in the whole period of his life. He was frequently troubled with sleeplessness. At other times he was severely afflicted with the stone. And besides this, he was also subject to affections of the bowels. He had accustomed himself to very strict habits of life. He could be found in his study at two or three o'clock in the morning, both in summer and winter. During the day he read three or four lectures, attended to the conferences of the professors, and after that labored until supper-time. After this he retired about nine o'clock. He would not open any letters in the evening, in order that his sleep might not be disturbed by anxiety. As his friends on the Rhine made him frequent presents of wine, he was in the habit of drinking a glass before supper. His habits were extremely regular. He generally took one simple meal a day, and never more than two. As he was frequently invited to entertainments at Wittenberg and other places, he could not at all times strictly adhere to this manner of life. He was not fond of luxuries, but preferred soups, fish, vegetables, and eggs. He was fond of conversing at table, and a man of his acquirements, who had conversed with princes, statesmen, and other celebrated persons, was never at a loss for a topic. He was fond of cheerfulness and pleasant jests, but his fervent piety diffused a pleasing and blessed light over his whole walk and conversation. He began every duty in the name of God, and as in his presence. The word of the Apostle Paul, in him we live and move and have our being, was ever present to his mind. He was frequently heard exclaiming, May our Lord help us and be merciful unto us. When he arose from his bed in the morning, he addressed the triune God in the following brief form of prayer. Almighty eternal God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Creator of heaven and earth and man, together with thy Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, thy word and image, and with the Holy Spirit, have mercy upon us and forgive us our sins for thy Son's sake, whom thou hast made our mediator according to thy wonderful counsels. And do thou guide and sanctify us by thy Holy Spirit, 
which was poured out upon the apostles. Grant that we may truly know and praise thee throughout all eternity. After prayer, he read a portion of the Bible, and then looked into the almanac in order to remind himself of the time of the ecclesiastical year, and of the men of God whose name days were there recorded. It was only after he had thus sanctified himself by the word of God in prayer that he began his labors, or wrote the most urgent letters. He always dined regularly at a fixed hour, and here not only a blessing was asked, but the Apostles' Creed was also repeated. He entertained a very high regard for this creed, and was in the habit of repeating it three times every day. He thus speaks of it in some of his writings. There are many reasons why we should accustom ourselves to a daily repetition of the creed. Godly and pious men are in the habit of repeating it at least three times every day. Dr. Jerome Scherf, a wise and learned man, when he found that death was approaching, repeated it almost every hour, and that too with such fervency of spirit that all could see how much he was encouraged and strengthened by this confession. He also laid great stress upon the Lord's Prayer, the Psalms, and the Ten Commandments, and frequently exhorted his students to accustom themselves to repeat them. This piety, which he constantly recommended to others, and practiced in his domestic life, also animated all the labors of his calling. He regarded his lecture-room, in which so many hearers assembled, anxious to hear their master, as if it were his church. He somewhere makes the remark, Above the entrance of many old churches, we read the inscription, My house shall be called a house of prayer, sculptured in the stone. This inscription should also be placed upon schools, for they are a part of the public worship of God. We there teach and learn the truth, and must unite prayer with it all. In another place he says, We occupy this position in the name of God, in order that we may preserve and disseminate that truth which gives salvation to the human race. And God demands diligence both on the part of teachers and pupils. We must enter the school with the same feelings with which we enter the temple, namely that we desire to learn and communicate divine things. If any man enters the school merely to acquire a portion of knowledge, which he may use for gain or empty ambition, let such an one remember that he is desecrating the holiest temple of science. It was his constant aim to do everything for the glory of God, and to be a useful instrument of the church. And if this was the case in all his efforts to educate youth, how much more was it the case when the church itself was concerned? He was not one of those with whom Christianity and affection for the church is something so internal that it never manifests itself. He approved of the use of particular forms of prayer. He says, We are not to despise the verbal prayer which helps to arouse us. Dr. Jerome Scherf very properly observes, Christ says, When ye pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven. Therefore it is not sufficient to pray in the Spirit, but if it is possible, we must also utter words by which the devotional feelings of our hearts are increased. In his prayers, he steadfastly relied upon the promises of God, and doubtless frequently rejoiced in having found that which he sought. He loved the house of God, and was a faithful attendant at the public worship of God. Herr Brand of Tübingen, in his eulogy, bears this honorable testimony. He was anxious to frequent public worship not only to set a good example to others, but because he knew that the Holy Spirit exercised his power through the word of God, 
and that the Son of God was present, so that his faith might be strengthened, and the spirit of prayer be enkindled in the congregations of the saints. Even as he constantly prayed with inexpressible sighs, and offered up prayers and supplications for the church and himself. We, who knew him, are all able to testify in regard to this. He once remarked to his hearers, You are not to act in so brutish and impertinent a manner as to think it does not matter even if I do not go to church, for it is nothing but popery and superstition. No, but it is barbarism to neglect these privileges. There is no more beautiful sight than orderly and holy assemblies, in which men are instructed of God, and where they unite in prayer and thanksgiving. We have here a type of eternal life where we shall sit in the presence of God and His Son, and hear the Son of God instructing us in reference to the greatest wonders. In another place he says, You must connect yourselves with the church and maintain the public worship of God. You know how frequently the psalmist prayed, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. O the Lord, let me live where there is a church, however small. Just as I once related of my little daughter, who said, Konigsberg is a very nice place, too, for there they go to church just like here. She saw how glorious these assemblies are. He also, in another place, expresses his sentiments in regard to this matter in a very decided manner. We love the united devotions of the house of God. Those who do not come to church, but accustom themselves to walking about, feasting, and other abominations, while the godly are assembled to hear the word of God, will degenerate more and more. They will become swine, lewd fellows, and devils. In my house at Tübingen, in which Dr. Jerome Scherf had also resided, this ancient verse was written upon the walls. To go to church delayeth not, to give alms impoverisheth not, and unjust wealth remaineth not. We have heard before that it was his opinion that the public worship of God should not be entirely devoid of all ceremonies, but the ceremonies should not be opposed to the scriptures. He did not approve of depriving the churches of their ornaments and pictures. However, we are already sufficiently acquainted with his sentiments in these respects. It is very remarkable that he attached such great importance to dreams, and the position of the stars. He dreamed a great deal, and in his letters frequently speaks of the stars, and whenever comets made their appearance he looked upon them as signs of evil times, and troubled himself exceedingly. He also relates instances of the influence exerted upon the lives of men by good and evil spirits, from which it appears that he looked upon such influences as very powerful. End of chapter 35